Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You know, they have this saying that uh, bad things happen to good people, and, you know, if that's true, that I must be some kind of a saint, you know? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I have a question. Was it luck or was it talent, effort, and skill that we're able to have one of our heroes, the great Bob Frank, on the podcast today? I would like to think that it's just our charm. I've worked on that charm all my life. You need to keep working, I think. (laughs) I'm Dave Pizarro from Cornell University. And yes, we have um, our first economist what a, what a way to start off, um, right, with with uh, Robert Frank, Bob, um, who is a, an economist here at Cornell at the Business School and who our podcast listeners may know because we forced them to buy his book, Passions Within Reason. Bob, welcome. Yeah, welcome. Hey, thank, thanks to you both for having me on. Yeah, we're uh, even though we're both in Ithaca, we're Skyping to each other because we really don't like personal close personal contact (laughs) it's actually easier it is a lot easier eh? (laughs) um so just before we started recording you said you wanted to give me grief as a philosopher as a member of the philosopher race because we don't know who someone named kos is i thought you were talking about the the island in greece dave thought you were talking about the daily (laughs) kos who is this kos Oh, he he's my intellectual hero. His name is Ronald Coase. He died, oh, must be two years ago now, ah. at the age of 102. Uh, and I think more than anyone else, he explained to the rest of the world how to think clearly about the problem of externalities. Well, behaviors that, where where inadvertently uh, most of the time you cause harm to others or or in some cases confer benefits upon them. Uh, people didn't think about those issues very clearly for the the whole of intellectual history until he came along. So so if I buy an SUV that weighs seventy five hundred pounds, I put you and Dave at greater risk of injury and death. That wasn't my intention in buying such a heavy vehicle. Maybe right. I needed it to tow my boat up into the mountains every weekend. But but the fact is, I did have a, a an external effect upon you, and markets by themselves don't often mediate those things very well. Because you're imposing a cost on society without in any way paying the cost. Right, I, and I think it's, it's puzzling to me still why philosophers don't know his work uh, 
especially moral philosophers, because it seems to me every interesting moral question, or at least the ones I find interesting, are roughly of the form, I want to do something, uh, is it okay for me to do it? And, and the only reason it wouldn't be okay for me to do it is that it's going to cause harm to other people. Well, I think one of the reasons is it doesn't involve trolleys. Uh, <laughs> and so that right kind of almost rules it out right there. Or lifeboats or a fat man in a cave or anything. Or violin know. players yeah. and Um You know, that's that's unfair. I'm actually just as we were uh getting ready to record this podcast, I was working on a press release with uh, Molly Crockett and Jim Everett and we're doing a paper. Um we just are getting a paper published that actually has quite a bit to do with Bob, even though he doesn't know it. Um, it's about, so we use trolley dilemmas and whatever, but it's about uh, how we judge other people who are consequentialists. And I always will remember, Bob, uh, I had a conversation with you where Bob was claiming to be a utilitarian. I said, do you really think that it's okay to push a fat guy to his death <clears throat> to save greater number of others? And Bob said something that's always stuck with me. I don't know if you remember, Bob. You said, um, Sure, it's right. I just would. I wouldn't want that guy on my team, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's at the, actually the heart of the paper. Like the, you can make the good moral decision, but still kind of be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the people who are borderline sociopaths usually score higher on making the right consequentialist decision when you give them quizzes. That's that's right. right. That I, you know, Bob Leanne Young with the. It's actually my finding with Dan Bartels, but, but who's splitting hairs? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, she did the patients with uh, emotional with the, deficits, right? Yeah, so she did the brain damage patients. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, so, should we briefly just talk about passions within reason? And I'm I'm just curious because it was such a huge influence on me. So I wrote my book. Uh, sorry, my dissertation on free will and moral responsibility. Um, Actually, the the guiding argument of the dissertation was was called the luck swallows everything argument. <laughs> it was arguing that we don't deserve <laughs> blame or praise for for our character and action. So it's in line with some of the thoughts in your new book. But I actually was very influenced by passions within reason, and you know quoted it and cited it at great length as a way of explaining certain attitudes like moral outrage and. Um, other retributive attitudes and attitudes that seem to sort of attribute responsibility to yourself and uh, and responsibility to others. So, yeah, I'd be wondering to hear your thoughts on that book now. It was 1988, right? 1988, so yeah. It's been a long yeah, we're, time. We're, has, has your thinking evolved on on this in any way, or is it? Uh, have you changed your mind about anything? You know, I haven't done a whole lot of work uh, in that area since a few papers that followed in the wake of that book, uh, but I was asked to give a talk about it recently at a conference in France, and it was fun to go back and think about those issues again, and yeah. I guess the short answer is that, no, I haven't changed my mind about much. Uh, there's been some work in the meantime that's provided support for the the basic empirical uh, grounding of the claims in that book. That was a paper that uh, Tom Gilovich and Dennis Regan and I did where we showed that in one-shot prisoner's dilemma games, when you took great pains to make sure that nobody would ever know 
what their partners had done even because uh, the payoffs got scrambled so thoroughly. People were actually pretty good at predicting who would defect and who would cooperate. First of all, the cooperation rate was uh, unusually high. It was about 75%. It should be zero according to the self-interest model. Uh, right. But it, but it was that, that wasn't a new finding. That's been found many times. Right. But we were mainly interested in whether you could tell which ones would cooperate and which ones would defect. So what information did they have? They talked to one another in groups of three for 30 minutes up front, and then they were each sent to a separate room. They filled out forms for their two games, one with each partner, where they recorded their predictions about what their partner would do, how confident were they in their predictions, and so on. And the the defection rate was only about a quarter, uh, and when you predicted your partner would defect, the probability that person would defect was about 60%. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, brief conversations. You know, if you're going to make predictions about what somebody you know pretty well would do, I'm hoping those would be more accurate. Right. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think the, the, the core idea of the book is uh, that even in the very most bitterly competitive environment, somebody who does the right thing, even at cost to herself, can survive if other people can discern that she's that kind right. of person because she's then valuable for uh, assignments that require trust. A whole host of interesting commitment problems are uh, soluble if you can communicate that you're prepared to act in a way that wouldn't be uh, strictly in accord with your narrow self-interest when the time comes. Right. And and we actually followed up on this with uh, – the work with David Steno, where we actually recorded people doing this is actually with Bob too. He's done so much um, <laughs> um, where we recorded people actually interacting and um, we had poor undergraduates code the nonverbal signals that they were emitting. And so because one of the open questions was, what exactly are people capturing? And and it seems as if, you know, independent of the content of the conversations, people's bodily expressions are actually communicating something about whether they're trustworthy or not. And we brought a robot in the mix. Yeah, that, that was the idea of the, of the model. It was that uh, if cooperation at cost to yourself was motivated by rational concerns, then why would you do it? Right. Uh, it it's just got to be that you feel bad if you don't cooperate. Right. You, you, you like your partner. You feel empathy for your partner, and if you cheat your partner, you're going to feel bad, so that's why you don't do it. And it wasn't so much that there were nice people and nasty people in in our study. I think partly was that if you had a bad exchange with someone, uh, you were less likely to think he'd cooperate, and he probably realized he'd had a bad exchange with you, and so why (laughs) why shouldn't I defect? He's going to predict I'm going to defect anyway. Right, Right. so there's two first— any listeners who haven't read this book, there's two co- sort of core ideas at the heart of it, which is that our emotions serve as commitment devices that motivate us to act against our short-term self-interests in order to solve these commitment problems, which will eventually serve the long-term interests of of yourself and everybody. And um, And then the second part of it is, Commitment devices like our emotions only work if you can somehow um, convey 
the, that that information that you are committed to other people. If you can't, then it doesn't work. So then it would make sense that we would have these expressive ways through signaling or through reputation of of conveying that information, expressing it. Right. And I love that part where, you know, the part of the book when I read it this way before I knew you, Bob, um, was the bringing in the signaling theory stuff. And I, I've often wondered, I don't know if I've asked you where you started off sort of getting into the evolutionary part. Yeah. You know, I think the, the idea that uh, a non-standard, at least from the economist's perspective, non-standard, non-standard preference might be adaptive in some way was one I explored in an earlier book, Choosing the Right Pond. So if you're, if you're bargaining with somebody and you care not just about how much you get in an absolute sense from the deal, but uh, how evenly whatever surplus you're trying to divide gets split between you, you're more credibly able to walk away from a, a, an unfair offer than if all you care about is the absolute amount you get. I mean, these are the kinds of issues that arise in the ultimatum game that's familiar to to many experimenters. And so uh, it was really just an extension of that idea. And, you know, the, the, the question always has been, how do you get these kinds of motives into the model? Uh, the, the economists, are, I think, are justifiably proud of the fact that they've committed themselves to a simple model. People are self-interested in the narrow sense, full stop. That model makes predictions. Right. We can right. test it. Uh, the alternative that, that people were using was what I call the warm glow model, which just means if you have a taste for something, you do it. Uh, you get a warm glow from doing it. So you give to national public radio because you get a warm glow from doing that. But It's just not but an explanation at all. That, then you can explain everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. I that, know. That's the crankcase oil problem. You, the, you drink. The dormative yeah. virtue. Yeah, exactly. But, but isn't, I mean, the self-interest model also fails in some point when people just take any action as conforming to self-interest, right? I mean, there's a way in which economists also use this as well. If you committed suicide, it's because you wanted to or whatever. Right. Then it becomes unfalsifiable. That's the, that's the warm glow model's problem. Yeah, you, can, you see any bizarre behavior. A guy drinks a crankcase oil out of his car. He writhes in agony and dies right there in the driveway. Well, no problem. Uh, he that guy must have really he liked really, Frank really wanted. <laughs> He got a warm glove. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so someone on our Facebook page, we posted today because we normally release our podcast on Tuesday, but we're, we're postponing it a week. Um, we said that we were having you on and that you were, you know, that we had both put that book really high on our list. And... Uh, a reader quoted a Richard Alexander critique, and I'm not, I'm not even sure where it's from because I'm just reading from the Facebook page, but it says, Only at the end of his book does Frank admit what the reader has long before begun to suspect, that after all, his arguments do indeed fit a self-interest model, just not a conscious pursuit of self-interest. And that just totally confuses me because... Isn't the whole point of the commitment model and the and a commitment device that it does get you to do things in your long term self interest? The, the the point is you can't consciously be trying to right. improve your self interest, right? Yeah, that 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 strikes me as well as a strange criticism, a kind of you miss the point criticism uh, in a way. 
I, I got some mail, uh, angry mail, after the book came out. People were concerned that I was using self-interest as a reason to be moral. And that's not a good reason to be moral. Yeah. And I, I, I think I, I understand the point that criticism is trying to make, but if you were trying to raise kids to be moral, which which regime do you think you'd be more successful in? Regime one, where the the message is, if you're moral, you're a chump. Right. right. Or regime two, if you're moral, you at least have a fighting chance to hold your own against people who are going to cheat you. I, I like my chances better in that second regime. So, yeah, it, it, you, you don't want to be moral— just to give the impression to other people that you're moral. If you do that, nobody's going to think you're moral. Right. It's like, it's like, uh, you have to genuinely be moral. Well, and that's, yeah. I mean, that's this, it, that kind of criticism just is really super annoying. It's what, it's just a, a very sort of sophomore undergrad criticism where um, it confuses an evolutionary account for one of, of proximal human motives. And I, you know, I, yeah. I take it that, that Bob's point in that book is that your proximal motives for leaving a tip, you know, in a, in a, restaurant that you'll never visit again are because you care right and it's 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 completely obvious to people whenever i give the example of of horniness right i say look it it, the reason that we have sex is often because we're horny right now you could say well the reason like the real reason is to procreate because natural selection favored individuals who have sex and so but nobody actually takes that as undermining Right. Nobody says, well, you say you're horny, so but you're you really, really just want to pray. You're not really horny. But that's how moral emotions work and all these other social emotions. Right. You're, you're really angry and you really feel cheated or you really feel empathy. And and it's it's an evolutionary explanation, not, you know, it, that yeah. such a confusion of what uh, what the two things are trying to explain. Uh, you know, the the listener who posted that on Facebook probably posted it in very good faith, wasn't trying to be. Oh yeah, he's uh, a great contentious. Uh, no. So, you know, it's not a it's a subject we can discuss and 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 try to root out. But you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't hear any malice. In no, 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 no. Oh no, no, this is a great guy. This is a Rob Sicka. He's a, he's been a listener from the very beginning, and um, you know, he's he's a hardcore evolutionary psychologist. We had to. Um, we had to do an episode finally on evolutionary psychology to appease him and uh, a couple of his friends. And I, I don't know why like, I would think that your book was very much in line with some of the evolutionary psychology stuff. Um, and I, you know, I know Richard Alexander is committed to a certain view of evolution, but even that I would think is compatible to your. Yeah. I don't uh, think anything I wrote would have challenged anything in his body of work that i know of yeah it's and it's very plausible and consistent with i think evolutionary work on emotions and why they evolved and so yeah, trivers yeah we give rob a hard time just because we give our list our listeners give us so much shit we can yeah. only just shovel a little bit of it back every so, once so in a while. i want to make sure rob actually read the book <laughs> otherwise we'll be like chumps you know people <laughs> will play us for punks uh, yeah so so we talk about the new book let's talk about the success and luck good fortune and the myth of meritocracy so when is the book coming out bob uh i just noticed uh because i check every day that it's in stock on amazon.com as of this morning so it's it's just now out oh 
perfect timing. I think the official publication date is August 19th. Awesome. Well, congratulations. I mean, April, excuse me, April 19th, not August. um, How many books have you written? Is this just like you just uh, you're like the Tupac of econ- uh, economists? You just go I, and and write I, books. I laugh when <laughs> someone asks me asks me that question because someone once did ask me that question two or three books ago, and I I made a sincere effort to count. <laughs> and, and one of my sons, I said eight or nine. I can't remember what it was then. One of my sons said, "No, name them." And I uh, I named them going in reverse order, and I got back to the first one which was Distributional Consequences of Direct Foreign Investment. And my son said, you count that as a book? <laughs> so I've, ne- I've never been sure what the right answer is to that question anymore. It's true. This is where you need a philosopher. What actually counts as a book? What is it? Is it cr- conceptual analysis. Is it, was <laughs> <Yeah>. it bound? <laughs> was it, uh, um, so the myth of meritocracy the subtitle is sort of provocative, and one of the things you start out with is, and I didn't know this, that meritocracy was actually, the the word itself was originally coined pejoratively, like by somebody who thought that the whole idea would have destructive consequences, right? Yes, it was uh, coined by Lord Young, a sociologist and member of the House of Lords in England, and uh, he was absolutely dismayed that it didn't take uh, any longer than for the ink to dry on his book that the term was widely adopted as a term of praise. <laughs> yeah. His book was a scathing satire of the the outcome of the the move toward meritocracy, so-called in the British educational system. It was set 30 years in the future, and it just had all these credentialed people running amok Actually, I, I didn't like the idea of using that as a subtitle. The, the, the publisher suggested it. They didn't like my proposed subtitle, which was uh, a personal perspective. Uh, they thought that would make people think it was an autobiography, which the book really isn't, although uh, I wanted that subtitle because I do tell a lot of my own, I recount a lot of my own experiences with chance events in life, uh, but it's not an autobiography, and, and so I'm, I'm very sympathetic that they didn't want to use that subtitle, but uh, it, it sounds like uh, a subtitle that's trying to tweak the right-wingers, and that wasn't my intention at all, I think. Uh, and in my own work, I, one of my themes for a long time has been that the world has, has really gotten way more meritocratic in the sense that uh, it's, it's much less uh, who you know and what favors people do for you now than it used to be. It's really much more all about performance. You know, If you're a nice person, you're not going to s- survive in the NBA if you can't hit your right. shots. Uh, or if you were just the son of Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah, the One world's the, gotten a lot more like the that, NBA, but that's not a good thing necessarily. That said, there is a way in which that subtitle ac- accurately captures what it is that you're trying to say, right? Right. It's it's that you know careers are very long, complex processes. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of steps. Uh, each step depends on all the steps that took place before it. If any one of those steps had been different, the path changes direction in some subtle way, then the next opportunities will be framed a little differently. So 
some of those steps along the way, some of those thousands of steps are going to be pure chance events. Right. So if the end of the line is a big success story, uh, what's almost certainly true is that if any of those chance steps along the way had been different, you wouldn't see this big success story at the end. You'd, you might see a different success story, but you might see a failure. Often you do see failure. Right. We don't hear, and we don't hear that much from failures. The, the, uh, there are no um, failure to get nominated for Oscar speeches. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so the, um, one of the examples you use is Brian Cranston. Yeah, there's a lot of good TV in this book. We, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of good discussion about it. <laughs> and I guess he, the reason he got Walter White as a role, which, of course, launched him. And he had been around working actor, very talented actor, f- for a long time. And nobody He was in his mid-50s. Right. And if you knew who he was, it was because you watched Malcolm, Malcolm in the, in the middle. middle. Malcolm right. in the Middle. Which, which I never did watch, and so I, I absolutely no idea It was a great was. show. It was a great. <laughs> or that one X-Files episode that he's on, which he's very that, good in. That was the episode that made Vince Gilligan want to cast him. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. But and it was 20 years ago. And that, in a way, he sort of earned through that good performance, or at least in a certain sense he earned it. But the he still had to pass through a couple of hurdles. So I guess Matthew Broderick and John Cusack were offered the role? They were both offered the role. Yeah, it was, this was going to be a big investment by AMC. They didn't want to have a no-name who'd never had a dramatic lead role playing the the big part in it. So they, they, they hammered. Gilligan, he offered the part to Cusack. Cusack turned it down. He offered it to Broderick. Broderick turned it down. I'm so glad. (laughs) Those guys wouldn't have been nearly as good as as Cranston. You know, I gotta, I gotta put in a little, um, uh, a little commentary about the the show itself was supposed to take place in my hometown of Riverside, California, famously known for its its meth problems because we're out by the desert. But they couldn't afford to shoot there, so that's why they went to New Mexico. Uh, Another so. little bit of chance, because I think the New Mexico <laughs> yeah, aspect great. of it is, yeah. is, is, is great. actually great. Yeah. Uh, you know, and also Dave and I, we did an episode on grad school, you know, just applying to grad school, succeeding in grad school. And we both had these crazy stories of how we even got into grad school that were complete flukes. For me, it was coming deep off a wait list. I mean, right. not not even on the ordered wait list, but on the, the wait list of people that they never that they hoped they would never have to get to or think about. And you know, just enough people turned them down so that they finally had to reluctantly. <laughs> like we need turn someone. <laughs> and, right. and, exactly, we need someone to fill this out. And. Uh, and yeah, like if even one of those people ahead of me hadn't, I, you know, that, that was it. That was my only shot that year at grad school. I probably wouldn't have applied the next year. I mean, everything that's followed sure. for, is just due to all those people turning it down before me. I describe a similar experience of my own in the book, and I'm sure there are many, many more experiences like that out there. But uh, what what seems to be true in a preponderance of cases where things turn out well, and, and this is not a critique of, of people for explaining their life stories in this way, but you, you, so you've become a success and you ask yourself, well, why did I succeed? Almost all the people who do succeed are very talented and hardworking. You know, right. it, 
you, we can come up with some examples where that's not true, but but the the preponderance of cases, uh, they really are quite good at what they do if they've succeeded in a major way. And that means for 30 years, every day they've been getting up, they've been working hard, they've been solving difficult problems. Uh, those That's the stuff that's going to spring to your mind when you try to construct your life narrative. You're not going to remember that little contingency about a wait list or a, uh, a guy who turned the part down before you got it. Uh, those things are sporadic. They're 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 less easily t- retrieved from memory, and uh, you know it, it may even be adaptive to to tell yourself that luck has nothing to do with it. I think you know looking ahead. If if you focus too much on the heavy role of chance in life, uh, you might be tempted to sit back and hope for the best. You know, hope you get a lucky break, and uh, and and that's not the way to succeed. Yeah, and, and there's there's an epistemic problem. I mean, there's it's harder to know what the chance events were, right? You don't have you have access to your effort. Everybody has access right. to their effort. So whether right. you talk to the failure or to the successful person. You know, the failure can be bitter about how much how hard they've worked when they look at other people who have succeeded and they haven't because they never got that big break. But um, but we all have access to our our you know desire and ambition and effort. Right. And uh, and I think that's why Tamler and I just are so easily persuaded that it was all luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, it's 100 percent luck if you go back far enough, of course. I mean, look. Yeah. You're, you're hardworking and you're talented. How did you come to be such a person? Okay, so that's actually central to what I wanted to ask. This, I want to ask a yeah. big question because there's one question which is the attributional process, right? So right. There, is, there is the question of what we attribute our own success to, our own failures. And you can imagine that one of the, the main thrusts of your book is, hey, if only you, you focus on the things that were outside of your control, the things that were due to luck, then then you'll realize maybe this, this will have implications for how you deal with the rest of the world. But then there's a, a bigger point, which is a metaphysical one, that it's all, I mean, it's just all, there ultimately. is, it's all ultimately where our leaves blowing in the wind, right? Right, right. And, and yet that's not a good way to think about your life. Right. So you can't convince people that this is true. But but there are times in the book where you seem to actually at least distinguish between you set you seem to yeah. set the metaphysical question aside and you seem to distinguish between effort, for instance, and and things that pure, are just pure chance. So here's an example. I, I, I marked down an example of this, too, and I had a question. So you have a distinction in the book between your pride in your great throwing arm versus your pride in being, I think it was a great teacher. And you said, there was no logic to my being proud of having a great throwing arm. That was just DNA. But teaching, I put a lot of effort in and I tried and I, you know, I don't know. It seems like based on some of the other claims you would make in the book, it's there's as much or as little logic to each of those things. No, those are those are distinct in an interesting way. I think Tamler, yeah. You know, why do some people expend a lot of effort? Uh, we, we don't know exactly, but it's probably mainly because they had genes that constituted them in such a way to want to get up right. and work hard in the morning, uh, or, and or they were raised in a certain way to right. to value that and and were 
uh, caused by their parents to adopt good habits and so on. They belong to one of those good cultures. If you're that kind of a person, well, lucky you. You know, I I don't have a, a innate desire to work hard. You know, I I I can work hard when I get absorbed in a project, uh, and it's a great feeling. But most of the time, my impulse is not to work hard. I think I would have done better if I'd had more of an impulse to work hard. But I think if you're thinking about working hard. Uh, even if you're the kind of person who can and maybe even uh, has a tendency to work hard, the fact that it's hard means you've got to summon something to get yourself to do it. Right. And if you think it's just all either going to happen or not according to how you're constituted, then that's all the excuse you need not to summon the effort when the, when the chips sure. are down. Sure. Oh, I, I, I get that. And this is exactly parallel to, I'm sure, a, a, a lot of discussions you've had with people about the various sides in the free will debate. Sure, yeah. But I guess I, I what I wanted to challenge you is from the other side of why, what's wrong with taking credit or being proud of having a great throwing arm, even though it's just transparently obvious that you didn't do anything to earn it. He did say that he then. took that compliment more favorably. I... I I think what I say specifically is that even though it was just a total accident that I could right. throw a ball farther than most people, uh, I couldn't help but walk around for two days with a stupid feeling of delight after <laughs> a graduate yeah, no, student right, had right. reminded me 20 years later that he was he still couldn't forget some throws that I'd made. Right. Uh, and that, and that, that's, that's, not, that's not a bad thing to... to feel a lot of positive effect when you discover that you're good at something relative right. to the field because you know how do, how do you find your spot in life i mean you you go where it feels good and and if you're good at something that feels good and and so sure it's fine to feel good if you're good at something but where is the illogic in it? Because you do say there is no logic to it. I guess is the uh, you know I I've, I I acknowledge that I did nothing to earn the the performance that that made him throw some praise my way. But uh, I do go on to say that uh, the fact that humans seem to feel that way when they get some praise is probably on balance a good thing. There might be a. a- a reasonable difference in the attributions we make, because I do think that it's different when I say I am proud of the work that I, you know, I was the other night I was up till four in the morning or something uh, trying to get a grant proposal done. And I say to myself, I am proud that I made that effort. And I'm, I mean something different when I say that than when I say, I am glad that I have, you know, that I'm not, fully bald yet or something like that um where where that took some effort too though from what you were telling me this is actually gets us to another uh, another discussion about (laughs) performance enhancing drugs (laughs) i i think it's a great thing that you feel good and proud that you stayed up till four doing something like that right but both of them i mean i accept that both of them are due to luck but there is a real psychological sense in which one of them feels under my control and the yeah. other one doesn't. Right. And I I feel like just sort of accepting that they're both metaphysically fully outside of my control is is failing to capture not only something that's a, a beneficial reaction, but something that in some real way is true. 
That is, yeah. in a local I, sense, I am yeah. agentic over some aspects of my life, and I am not over others. I, I completely agree with that. I, and I hope I didn't give the impression in anything in the book that I didn't agree. Look, the, no, the, no, people, no, the people who are primed to believe that there's no such thing as free will, they're much less likely to take action when the chips are down. Right, that's what I, was I mean, there there have been experiments. I, I, I cite some in in the book. It's it's. Uh, okay, so right, so so let me actually because this is a, in the free will debate. It's often it often centers around the negative aspect, whether or not um, people believe that you deserve blame. Under what conditions it might make sense to say that somebody is blameworthy or responsible and not. And so here's here's the kind of difference that I'm trying to point to. And, and I actually don't. I don't think that you've you've sort of said anything in the book that disagrees with this. I just, I didn't see that you tackled it in this particular way. And so here's my pitch to you. When it comes to things that we're blameworthy for, we can, we can agree that at the end of the day, you know, it's all matter in motion. Um, and so we can say in some deep sense, nobody really is morally responsible. But then in everyday life, when somebody um, trips and hits you, that's a really, really different thing that if somebody says, you know what, Bob, I don't like you and hits you. And I don't think that's just illusion that is sort of beneficial for society. I think that's a, there is a real difference in the processes. And that's why I think maybe we were both pointing to sort of chance events versus things, at least in which the, the most proximal thing that caused it was a mental state, like an intention. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Okay. So... Uh, about the experiments you referred to that people are less likely to take action if they believe that free will is an illusion. My issue with those experiments, in those experiments anyway, there were, the way they describe a world where there's no free will is not a world where everything is caused, but it's where everything is fated to happen. So it's a fatalistic world where no matter what you do, right. the outcome is going to turn out to be the same. And that's very different from a world in which everything that you do is caused. And even though you're not responsible ultimately for the outcomes, what you do plays a big role in determining what the outcome will be. I, I sometimes think that the fatalist view is conflated with the, you know, everything ultimately is determined and everything ultimately comes down to luck view. And those are two very different things. But if you're a fatalist, uh, what you'll choose to do will be different. So it may yeah. be. It may be right. that. That's, yeah. that, that, that's <clears throat> absolutely right. But recognizing the role of luck in your li life doesn't commit you in any way to thinking that what you do doesn't matter in terms of what the outcome will be. No, of course not. No, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't begin to do that. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason it's, it would be good if people paid more attention to the role of chance in their successful outcomes is that the, the, the clear preponderance of evidence shows that you're much more determined to hold on to every nickel that comes your way if you think yeah. you were completely responsible for for that stream right. of revenue flowing to you rather than somewhere else and i think yeah. the 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 ease with which you can change that orientation was to me the most striking discovery 
uh, I came across in the process of doing the book. Just ask people to think about breaks they've enjoyed along the way, and suddenly they get so much more generous and, towards others. And I think they will get happier. And maybe actually... Yeah. Yes, I, exactly. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and talk <laughs> about those experiments. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We'd like to take a moment to thank everybody, as we usually do around this time, for all your support, for taking the time to email us. There's actually some Facebook comments that I want to respond to, um, about, especially about the gun stuff. We've got to get to that. Maybe next episode um, we'll take some time and, and get to that. we got some flack for it. Uh, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards. Is it tweet to us or just tweet us? I don't know. I think it's tweet tweet at us. You don't say tweet I'll t- to. At, I'll tweet to you. T- I don't think it's tweet you because you're doing it. No, because you're doing it to Twitter as a whole. You're, if you want to provide more concrete support, you can um, go to iTunes and give us a rating and leave us a review. We always really enjoy those. <clears throat> you can go to our website, verybadwizards.com slash support there you can either um choose to give us some money directly via paypal or you can just click on the amazon link and shop as you would normally and we'll get a little piece of that by the way a couple of things real quick alex tejada came up to me after i just gave a talk at the apa and got a picture with me in his very bad wizards t-shirt and gave a gave me a book which I actually don't have with me, but um, that it's a science fiction group of science fiction stories that he said we would enjoy and, and maybe talk about one of them. So thank you. That was really fun to to meet somebody in the real out world in the, out in the yeah. real world. Yeah. And um, also, I don't know if you saw, but v- through Vlad, through some debate with Vlad, we got into this big discussion with David Simon I, on Twitter. Uh, I saw, yes. I, <laughs> after the cryptic text from you. Oh, yeah, right. I, but yeah, that was that was really fun, and it was very funny that Yoel, frequent guest Yoel Imbar, because uh, I was taking my side, which is the one that pleases almost nobody, which is, yeah, some of this shit is bad, but it's not that big a deal. And it doesn't happen as often as the media would like people to think. And David Simon was sort of arguing with that, but also arguing with Vlad on, on the specifics of the Yale issue. And and then Yoel comes in and says, anytime you can't get the sympathy of the person <laughs> who wrote The Wire... 
it it might be time to rethink your position. And that totally convinced me. Like I was like, yep. That's it. So, so yes, John Haidt, you're right. It's a huge problem. Wait, wait. Let's There's not no get academic crazy. freedom. <laughs> there must be some in between <laughs> yeah. position to take. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty awesome. Yes, for for those who would not have immediately recognized David Simon's name, he is a, he's another hero of ours. Just just for having done the wire, um, he could just drop the microphone and imagine <laughs> getting him on. That would just like Robert you. Could, you should have just asked him. I don't know why you didn't end with that. <laughs> I would actually be willing to talk about campus politics if David Simon came on. <laughs> it's pretty much the only. It's the only person. It's like Vince Gilligan. No way. Like not doing it. Love your show. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Now we're here uh, with Bob Frank, uh, whose book Success and Luck is actually out. We'll have a link um, on our show notes. To, to purchase this from Amazon. I didn't realize it was already out or I would have bought it. So we were talking about, um, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about what I think is a real effect. And I don't know if anybody's done a study, maybe Bob, Bob, you're aware of this, but you know, one of the things that becomes obvious when reading the book is that you could tell the story of your life and your success in one of two ways, right? So you could actually bring people in and say, hey, you know what, focus, I want you to tell us how you got here, say Cornell undergrad how did you make it and um ask people to focus on those little events right this sort of sliding doors uh phenomenon the all all of the things that could have gone some other way versus asking them to talk about their effort and i think that one of the results inevitably would be and and i'm not sure why but paradoxically perhaps that i'm just happier when i think and maybe this gets to the discussion of gratitude. Um, when I when I attribute, when I sit and think about the things that people in my career have done, in, <clears throat> including, for instance, Bob, who was my, actually, uh, you were my junior professor mentor. <laughs> um, but the breaks that I've gotten because of people like you or Paul Bloom or, or Dan Ariely or Tamler Summers. The, <laughs> see, um, I've made you. You, ha- you, have, you have made me into a horrible anti-Semite. <laughs> Um, that I actually, maybe it's the gratitude that makes me happy, but I don't feel as if it takes away from the things that I've done. Um, no, it's, uh, amazing, especially to someone from my background as an economist. I mean, we're, we're so quick to remind people there's no free lunch. If you, (laughs) if you get more of something here, that means you got to give up something over there. Uh, it's all trade-offs all the way down. Uh, in, in the realm of human emotion, it doesn't seem to work out that way. So if, if you prime somebody to feel gratitude about something, uh, you could say, well, that he ought to feel worse because now he realizes that he didn't do it all himself. Right. But in fact, uh, the evidence is completely conclusive that if you're primed to feel gratitude, you feel better about your situation. So is that because we – so here's what I want to know. So take an Oscar speech. You, you get up there and you say, like, I'd like to thank so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Um, is there a way in which some people are simply – are they simply saying, well, all of my hard work was sort of enabled by these people – or are they actually saying, "Would it? I would just not be here, 
right? I'm, I mean, I don't know what causal attribution people are making, and it's hard to know the sincerity with which people are, are you know, giving up the, the effort and control over their own outcomes. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, we can know in any precise way how to parse remarks like that. I mean, we're, we're pretty good in some situations at detecting sincerity. Uh, and, and when somebody gives a convincing version of that speech, we think we know it when we see it. Uh, it'd be interesting if you had a window to, to actually test that. Yeah. It actually makes intuitive sense to me. So one of the worst feelings is when you feel like the world is just screwing you. <laughs> like you've put in all this work and your talent and just the quality of what you've done is not being recognized. I, uh, I, I don't really, think I've ever that, felt <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know it's like, um, but you know, I know this yeah, is in no. the academic world. It seems like the modal. Common, it seems like the modal yeah. emotion. Yeah, yeah. It's it's exactly. It's this kind of bitterness, and it's this, and it's a very ugly feeling. And so, Haters. what you're describing, Dave, is the opposite, which is you feel like you've in fact gotten a good deal. We, we like getting good deals, just in general. So it makes sense that we would be happy. That life has treated us well, right? Like I'm constantly walking into a store and I'm the millionth shopper. Like I feel, you know, and it, it makes me happy, and and I don't really need to have control over that outcome to be made happy about it, right? Well, you you would feel happy if you won the lottery. I would feel happy if I won the lottery. That's yeah. Right. yeah, even though you had no control over it, right? But uh, what really struck me was the results of a simple experiment that one of my research assistants did, uh, and it was just pure dumb luck that I, I had this woman working for me. Normally, uh, I wouldn't have even had a chance to talk to her, but a, a, a quirk of fate delivered her to my office door, and I hired her, and she ended up being by far the best research assistant I've ever worked with in 40 years teaching at oh, Cornell. Wow. And she designed an experiment where she uh, recruited a subject pool she divided them into three groups. She asked each group to think of something good that had recently happened. The first subgroup, she said, give me three reasons why it happened that you had control over, something you did or some trait you have that caused it to happen. A second group to list three external reasons that the thing had happened. And then a control group, uh, they just were supposed to say something good that had happened. And... They got a, a bonus for completing the experiment, which she, at the end, gave them a chance to give some or all of to charity, a charity of their choosing from three that she, she listed. And the, the ones who were asked to provide external causes for the good thing, some of them mentioned luck explicitly, but others uh, talked about a helpful spouse or a mentor. They gave 25% more than the ones who yeah. listed personal qualities mm. uh, for, for the thing having happened. And the control group fell squarely in the middle. And there have been, uh, you know, Dave DeSteno's work. Yeah. There's a lot of other experimental work where you put people in a situation, you manipulate them cleverly so that they experience the emotion of gratitude. They're, they're, you can directly measure whether that's happened. And then you give them a chance to incur some costs uh, to benefit others at their own expense. And the ones who are primed to feel gratitude are much, much more generous than the others. So it's really a powerful 
magic elixir, this gratitude. You know, I, when uh, I was reading about those experiments, I, uh, I was also brought to mind the Eisen and Levin experiment that's often used to demonstrate like the power of the situation but also fits that effect <laughs> finding like a dime in the phone booth makes right. you more likely to help people pick up the manuscripts of of, of paper when it was a dime yeah. and when when there, when there were dime, when, yeah. when there were phone booths um yeah. you know, alice <laughs> that's I, a very hard experiment to explain to your children there's none none of it is relevant she, to fuck children world. undergrads i can't even i have it right. takes too long to set up the explanation for my undergrads <laughs> it's like what's a manuscript <laughs> like, like, um the, the alice eisen the the lead author um was our colleague uh, here at cornell she was actually in in the business school and in the psychology department um so but here's a question i have though about gratitude and this is actually something that I've talked to Tom Gilovich about, um, Tom being the one who saved Bob's life. I'm you talk about luck, talk about luck, man. I mean, he didn't even know how to do chest compressions. He just was repeating it. So this story is in is recounted in the book. But Bob had how many years ago was it now? November 2007. And I swear to God, I saw Bob weeks later, and he looked as if nothing had happened. I don't know how. I I mean. Yeah, but but Tom and Bob were playing tennis, and Bob had a heart attack, and he did. No, I I suffered sudden cardiac death, which is a, a different animal. Ninety eight percent of the people to whom that happens never regain consciousness; they just stay dead. So so when we experience gratitude, there is to me it requires an agent behind it. So I. In the way that you described the study, the external influences were ones um, that either could have been sort of fortune or were the goodwill of people. <clears throat> and I'm wondering whether there is – so t- Tom actually says that, that he, he experiences sort of the universe, gratitude toward the universe for sending fortune his way in some nebulous way. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very different to say that these people helped me become who I am than it is to – well. It- it is different, but is the effect different? Uh, I, I think I share Tom's intuition that just to recognize that you were the beneficiary of good fortune, whether from the help of another person who had agency in, in providing the help or from just uh, a sheer chance event. The, I, I would have died on that uh, sudden cardiac death episode had it not been for the fact that an ambulance arrived shortly after he yelled out for somebody to call one. And the only reason that happened was that before I'd collapsed on the tennis court, there were two auto accidents right near the tennis court. Right. And ambulances, two of them, were sent to to attend to the people involved in those accidents. One of the accidents wasn't serious. That ambulance driver was able to get a call and peel off and come to me if they hadn't burst in and put the paddles on me and flown me to a hospital in Pennsylvania all in very short order, I'm not here. You know, and that's just, uh, you know, that, there's no agency involved. In right. That. That's just the, 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 the most remote form of a chance event I can think of. Okay. And, and, you know, Dave, like karma, right? Just the idea of karma doesn't really distinguish between those two things where an agent is behind it. Um, yeah, but that's it, why it, I find karma really, I mean, car, but karma, karma does have some notion that, that your behavior caused right. the good fortune. 
right? Yeah, I, I don't mm-hmm. like that notion myself. Uh, well, I'm thinking of it more like you owe now the universe. The universe did something good to you, and so you owe Oh, the I, I thought you meant that the universe was paying you back for something you did in no, the past. No, 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 no. The, I'm thinking of the well, next step. Well, it says step. that, too. It does, yeah. The next step. Both, yeah. Right. right. Uh, so, I, yeah. you know, I, I agree that they're both very positive emotions, but the feeling of being lucky and the feeling of being grateful to me seem different in the sense that if I won the lottery, I feel lucky. Um, but if someone helped me out in a bind financially with the same amount of money, I feel grateful. And and one just I, I, I feel like I can tag one one emotion I can express. You know, it's one of the most wonderful feelings in the world is to 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 tell somebody years later. You know that thing that you did, you might not remember, but it really made a difference for me. And people, you know, people are really surprised sometimes because they have no recollection. But you can't you can't do that as well with luck. Well, I mean, you can't do it at, at all, right? You can't think. Well, but but you can think about having been the beneficiary of luck on an occasion, and that does seem to affect you in a qualitatively similar way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there was a a nice experiment where subjects were asked to write a handwritten thank you note and deliver it personally to to someone they had inadequately thanked on the occasion and read it to them. And that intervention, there were, I think, five or six different interventions that they did with the subjects, each one of which was known to boost happiness scores. And that specific one had a, a a larger and more durable effect by far than any of the others. But this is also about getting you in the in a more generous mood, right? So I guess the question is, is there a distinction? I don't know if this experiment has been run. The effect on generosity between, you know, just luck from the universe and luck that was um, the result of somebody doing something kind for you. Yeah, we 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 didn't in the in the experiment that my research assistant Selena Huo ran. We didn't try to keep track of what the external causes were that people listed and match that with how much they gave to the charity. Uh, I, I don't think we would have had enough power to identify much of any effect there, but that's something that we could investigate. Yeah, and, and be my hunch is it'll it. be roughly the same. I have yeah, seen... that'd be my prior too, but. Uh, we could study that. Yeah, yeah. It, it may it may it may very well be be the same. And I'm just making a needlessly philosophical distinction. <laughs> well, here, here, here's the point that I think is uh, the important takeaway from all all the thinking I did about luck, which is that if you think you made your success happen all on your own, that really does seem to make you more tight fisted. Uh, the the demands for lower tax rates on top earners have gotten more insistent the more the total share of national income has been going to those earners. And so we've had these huge budget deficits. You know, I graduated from college from a really good state school, debt-free in 1966. Oh, wow. Uh, there's there's hardly anyone who graduates debt-free now. 70% of the kids graduating have a, have some debt. The average debt that those kids carry is $32,000. Yeah. You know, the, the you're, reduction. What you're doing is you're scaring two, two fathers of, a, of 11, 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> We're not supporting the investments that would let people succeed. You know, the, the luckiest thing that could happen to anybody is to be born where – 
if you're good and if you work hard, then you could succeed. Uh, but we're not making those investments, and part of the reason we're not making them is that people are so determined to hold on to every last nickel because they earned it. Right. Well, you know, so if you can just that remind the, their them, false beliefs about their own merit have led them to be less generous than they would otherwise be if they just had an accurate understanding of exactly. the role of luck in their life. So that that's my real hope for the book. Right. Uh, you know that that people who read it will will go out and talk to their successful friends and just ask them. Think about how you you got to your position. Were there any lucky breaks you enjoyed along the way? And and I've done this many many times. I've gone. You know, Dave. I go out to talk to alumni groups. They're mostly NPR listeners, uh, <laughs> but occasionally. Right. The, the Rochester Club, that's a very uh, deep red enclave up there. Mm-hmm. And, and the conservatives will come up. They'll want to talk about the lucky breaks they've had. And they'll start talking about, oh, here's a public investment I think we ought to be doing more of. And you can, you can change how things turn out just by having these conversations. You know, the, the so one thing that, that should be clear that you're not saying is that nobody actually worked for what they got. And I think that conservatives oh. hear that sometimes, right? But but you know, yeah. there's there's obviously you know you cite you cite Gladwell, and whether or not the ten thousand hours number is is a reliable finding, it right. certainly is the case that a whole lot of effort goes into a lot of success. But you're you're switching it on them. You're not saying you don't deserve what you got. It's just that other people also deserve the breaks that you got, and they didn't get them. And they didn't get them. Um, yeah, Charlie Munger, uh, he's Warren Buffett's lieutenant. Uh, he said, the best way to get what you want is to try to deserve what you want. If, if it's 2,000 hours, 10,000 hours, 15, we don't know how many hours it takes, but you don't just stumble onto deep expertise. You've got to bust your butt to get it. And, right. and so, sure, most of the people who make it, uh, they worked hard. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So one of the, the so on the one hand there are these experiments that you're happier if you reflect on the the how lucky you've been that you're more generous but there is also this attitude that you sometimes get and you describe a story of you going on some Fox show with a, a, a guy named Stuart Varney, who sounds like just like a true asshole. Just it sounds like a Saturday Night Live character or something. Yeah. So he was, he was, you know, I don't know how much of this was, was for show or how much of it was real, but he seemed very not offended that you would call his achievements somehow out of his control or somehow the result of luck rather than his hard work. <laughs> he came with nothing. He took risks. He came from all the way from Great Britain, that, foreign, <laughs> and, that and, exotic and, foreign and, country. And that, had to labor in the American market with a right. British accent. With a British accent, <laughs> yeah. right. That, that, that deep social stigma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of being really smart yeah. and witty. Yeah. Yeah. An LSE graduate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, but that is, you do find that, um, you know, as someone who teaches free will and who always uh, at some point devotes time to the skeptical position, I find that there are, that there's a contingent of students, and it's, I, I almost feel like it's getting smaller as I teach this more, that, that really do take it personally and, and get angry. And often it is, you know, sometimes it's the more working class students. 
you know, they're they're working two jobs while taking five classes and they don't want to be told right now that it, it all comes down to luck. So how do you well, negotiate it, that? It, it's a it's I, I see some evidence that there's a right left divide on this. Uh, there was a, a, a campaign event that Elizabeth Warren uh, held in 2012 when she was running for the Senate and she gave her famous you didn't build that speech. And right. uh, you can go online and get the clip of it. Uh, she doesn't say one word in that four-minute clip that anybody would have any reason to say, no, that's not right. She just says, look, you built a business. It succeeded. Great for you. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You shipped your goods to market on roads the rest of us paid to build and maintain. The police and fire uh, brigades kept you safe. Uh, The social compact is you pay forward for the next group that comes along. The, The striking thing was that that clip went viral both on the left and on the right. The people on the left thought, oh, this is wonderful. She's finally uh, laid it out clearly. But on the right, it was just transparently, egregiously wrong, what she had said. <laughs> Even though all of it is undeniable. <laughs> I mean, it's complete. Yeah, there was nothing controversial in the statement. Right, right. It was, uh, it was my hard work that gave me the ability to pay 12% tax. Um <laughs> It's it's interesting because as the child of of immigrants from Latin America, um, I I sort of I, I get both things right where I I understand, for instance, why my parents are tend to be economically conservative and have sympathies toward toward the right um, because the whole point of coming to the United States was that this was a place in which their hard work would be rewarded. Um, and yet at the same time, the whole point of coming to the United States as a place where their hard work can be rewarded is because we have built it to be such in that very way. It really is just a matter of, of <clears throat> what, what do you emphasize for what reason? And some people just need to be reminded what I think is very salient in the immigrant mentality, that they're... You know, you might have control over whether you can come to the United States, but what you are grateful for is, you know, I say, you know, I'm not giving America speech here, but but there is something that I think we often forget, which is that there is more opportunity here um, than most places in the world. Historically, that's been something we've always been really proud of, but now the the kids from low-income families, people in the bottom third of the income distribution, if their kids have top quartile scores in math, they're less likely to graduate from college than the children in the top third of the income distribution who have bottom quartile scores in math. Right. That, that's, that's not right, you know, it, and it didn't used to be true either. I mean, there was always uh, a, a gap between the affluent and the less affluent, but it's just gotten to be a situation that nobody who looks carefully at it can feel proud of. So in some ways, and, you're and a, it's not an eat. equal playing field anymore, uh, and it was probably never a fully equal playing field, but it's much less equal now. And we could fix that without anybody having to sacrifice anything important. Okay, you know, so I talk, explain that. So, I I, I think. Uh, Somebody asked me uh, to write up the biggest idea I'd ever had uh, in 500 words, and I, I, 
I panicked. I, I wondered first whether I even had a, a big idea, but I, I thought about it for about a week, and then I recalled a conversation I'd had, a conversation with a colleague over lunch. He, he wanted to know, did I know about all the taxes that Obama had in store for us? And then uh, I said, no. You know, I knew the Bush tax cuts on the top earners were going to expire, but no, I hadn't heard about any others. He listed eight or nine new taxes that Obama was going to heap on. I said, no, I hadn't heard about any of those. He seemed shocked. You want to know why I don't know about those, I asked him. I said, yeah, why? why? And I said, that doesn't matter for people like us. He has a successful textbook. I have a successful textbook. We have all we're ever going to spend. With with Ben Bernanke, we should say. (laughs) With Ben Bernanke. uh, Don't try to diminish Bob no, I'm I am ra- I am ra- I'm raising him by saying that he has one of the is it yeah. the most popular when, textbook? Uh, no, yeah, it isn't. Not. When my students hear that I wrote a textbook with them, they suddenly think I I must be smarter than they thought. <laughs> so I I said, look, uh, are you what are you worried about? They're going to raise your taxes so you can't wait, get what you need? No, that's never going to happen. Well, what then? They're going to raise your taxes so you can't buy what you want? Yeah, that was what he was worried about. <laughs> well, so so look. To get what you want, uh, people like him and me, what do we want? We want something special. We already have everything we need. So we want something special. What does that mean? Stuff that there isn't enough of, a house with a view, a choice slip at the marina, whatever it might be. How do you get those things? You have to outbid other people like you, people with similar preferences and incomes to get them. If they raise your taxes and my taxes, how does that affect who gets those things? Answer, not at all. But when you think about your taxes going up, that's not the way you think about it. You just think, that means I'll have less money if they raise my taxes. And most of the times in your life when you've had less money, everyone else has had the same amount of money as before. And in that case, you really are less able to get what you want. So that's the big idea. We can, each of us who are successful, contribute a little more in taxes. We'll still get the house with a view or the choice painting we're after. Nothing will change there, but in the meantime, we'll build a much better environment for the next cohort coming along. And that's something we ought to do. It's like cutting off two inches off of every NBA player. Exactly. Right. exactly. <laughs> so, or, or, or lowering the basket. <laughs> lowering the basket, which so would this be easier. Was a, this is an idea that you talked about in Luxury Fever, right? Is the, yeah, uh, I've, been, I've been talking about this for yeah. decades. So yeah, and and making very little headway I might on say. positional. So this sort of notion, which is built on a lot of psychology, that's I want to get at the core of this. Are you are you a role? like we had a discussion about Rawls and the whole idea of this 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 maxi men, right? Like are what is I'm I'm imagining now our most conservative listeners that Tamler brought along by interviewing his mother, who are going to say you know what's right what's to stop us from just radical redistribution, uh, you know, chopping off everything. Like, where is there any incentives that get cut off by? Sure. A, as an economist, sure. you maybe can tell us like the, what the real, what the real answer is. Whether it will d- reduce people's motivation. If you put all the income in the country into a pot, and then wrote an equal check to everyone, <laughs> no one would work. All right. So do incentives matter? Yes, they surely do matter. You can't have a 100% tax rate and give out the income in equal 
quantities to everybody or note you might you might want to work but then you'd see your neighbor not working and getting the same amount you were getting and you'd say the heck with this you know I'm I'm not working either right so you need some uh, it needs to be true that when you work more you get more but what the evidence says is that the slope of that function doesn't have to be very steep right uh, they raised the top income tax rate in California last year. They they had de- decades of budget deficits. The state was falling apart. They raised the top tax rate significantly. There were dire predictions that the rich people would move to Oregon or Nevada, and apparently there's been virtually no movement. Uh, and the budget snap sucks. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 if you're a player in California, then you're still a player if everybody has 2% less income to spend on right. stuff. Right. So, uh, yeah, what do you think? You say you've had this idea for for decades, and, and I guess the, 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 thing, the policy that you're promoting is a progressive income tax on consumption. Right? No, a progressive what, consumption tax. Sorry. Pro, uh, yeah. That's what, yeah, that made no sense. <laughs> progressive consumption tax. What is it that you think is driving the resistance? Do you think it's this idea, I earned my money and I don't want people stealing from me? Is it that attitude? Is that why? Is that what motivated you to, to write this book? Yeah, that's, that's part of the resistance. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's, it's a lot of different things coming together. You, you have a group called Transparency International. They survey people around the world. How do you feel about the services provided by your government? How do you feel about the level of corruption you see among government officials? There are a dozen countries year after year that are at the top of that list. You see Canada. You see New Zealand. You see Australia. You see the Nordic countries. They're always up at the top. Very low levels of perceived corruption. People think they get great value. If you've traveled in those countries, wow, the infrastructure is uh, really very well maintained and, and quite elaborate. The environment's clean. Uh, it sure looks like they've stumbled onto something there. Uh, here we've been bashing the government ever since really the 1970s uh, uh, in earnest when I think Ronald Reagan famously said uh, the government isn't the solution, government's the problem. Uh, and, <laughs> and so smart people, why would you want to go work in the government if government's the problem? You know, it, it's it's hard to build a good government. You can build one, but it takes work. I mean, there is kind of an American, it's part of the DNA of America to distrust the government. And is that it's amazing. I was just talking to somebody in Toronto uh, and Canadians, in fact, have they don't complain about their government. And and I find that there are a lot of things to complain about. It's an amazingly American attitude, as Tamler says. It it wasn't always thus. It's gotten much, much more pronounced in the last several decades. You know, the idea that, you know, there would be refusal to consider a Supreme Court nominee, that you wouldn't uh, fill vacant judgeships at the highest court levels, that you would block major appointees, you know, that's that's a new thing. We didn't used to see that. But isn't that, I mean, that particular thing is a new thing, and the dysfunction of Congress is a new thing. But that attitude, I mean, just in the, the founding documents and the... You know, there's so many built-in protections from government that we have in our Constitution. Sure, and there are good reasons to be mindful about bureaucrats not 
acting in the public interest. You need checks and balances to to keep right. them on the right path. So no, there's nothing mysterious about that. But but the the bureaucrats in Ithaca, the, those people come in early and they stay late. And they they if there's an emergency, they they work around the clock to deal with it. They're not yeah. they're not they don't have their hand in the till as the as the common perception of government would have. <laughs> so, I mean, it seems like a ground up solution of getting people to feel confident in their governments will be, I mean, like, for example, Houston right now has undergone a transformation in terms of like quality of life. They're all of a sudden expanding green spaces, building tons of bike paths that connect all over the city. And, and people are very happy with that. And I bet people given that will would be our I would hope would be more like more willing to donate um to a government that they now feel like is a local uh, government is 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 actually functioning well well i and i think i think actually there's a key point here which which is that in these examples you see where your money has gone. I think that it's fundamentally sort of a human problem that that um, we, you know, we we get our ta- you do your taxes or you get your check and you see what you made and you see what was taken away and you don't see very easily what that money was used for. I mean, you you know, you get it itemized by your the kind of tax maybe, but but you don't see a bike path. You don't see you know people building highways based on your. In I think that. Whether rich or poor, that n- makes nobody feel good. I think that the problem is the rich people are just the ones we need to give more money. But I, I don't, you know, I, the very first time you ever got a, a a paycheck, you probably felt the same way those really rich people did do, right? It's quite natural uh, in human cognition to think if you earned a hundred dollar paycheck, that was because you made a hundred dollars worth of stuff. I made it. Why shouldn't it be mine to keep? But you know. If you don't have mandatory taxes, that means the government can't – you can't have a government. If you don't have a government, you can't have an army. That means you'll get invaded by a country that has one, and then you'll pay mandatory taxes to them. So you just <laughs> – you really – you have to bite the bullet on that. But uh, what I'm saying is actually a, more, a tamer version of the sort of as maybe a behavioral economics solution to this, which is um, make less salient – here's what you heard and here's what we took away – and make a bit more salient. Um, here is here's where the money here's goes. where the money goes. Here's yeah, a picture. Like you know, that. it's like the what, you know, it's like back in the day yeah. when you would sponsor a starving child and you'd get month, yeah, monthly updates. I, I like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, that that's a constructive solution for sure. Right there. We don't want to solve all the world. Just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I feel like we've kept you on long enough, Bob. Um, is there anything? Is there anything about the book that we didn't touch on that you wanted to touch on? Uh, no, we we really uh, covered, I think, most of the main points I would have hoped to be able to make in our conversation. And, and again, thanks for spending the afternoon and, and chatting with me about it. It was a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much. Uh, I am grateful that uh, you came on the podcast, and we hope to have you on again. You know, if this book becomes a runaway bestseller, it'll be probably harder to... <laughs> and congratulations to you both. I mean, I know you've put in a lot of hours building your audience and learning the technical details of how to make it work right when you do this. And, and you know, a lot of people would like to be where you're sitting now and, you know, didn't have the whatever it took to 
<laughs> spend that effort. The jeans. What did it take? The, the, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have the jeans and upbringing it took to get them. That's there. right. They're very, very tight jeans. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate that.